Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell in us. Cleanse us of all sin and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Andy Hickman, who's here from our in our institute office in Virginia, is with us to introduce our speaker tonight. Welcome, Andy. Thank you, Father. Our speaker this evening is the author of more than 50 books on Catholic history, doctrine, and devotion. His books have been translated into more than a dozen languages, from Spanish and Hungarian to Polish and Braille. The Fathers of the Church and the Mass of the Early Christians are considered standard textbooks in universities and seminaries. Mike Aquilina edited the Pittsburgh Catholic newspaper from 1993 to 1996, and afterward edited the New Covenant magazine from 1997 to 2002. He and his wife, Terry, have been married since 1985. They have six children, and two grandchildren on the way. We're thrilled to welcome for the first time to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Mr. Mike Equilina. Well, well, thank you very much, and thank you for having me. I have a terror of public speaking, and now I'm really terrified. <laughs> since, we're, since we're speaking about uh, our mother, uh, I'd like to go to her at the beginning, and I'd ask you to join me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for your prayers. Um, last Friday, I was out for lunch with a friend of mine who's a monk and a scholar of some renown. And um, in the course of our lunch, he asked me about my current projects. And I told him I was preparing this webinar on the Proto-Evangelium. Well, he rolled his eyes, and he did a face palm, and he said, I can't stand that book. And I wasn't at all surprised. Uh, in fact, I was ready for this. The Proto-Evangelium has probably been controversial since the day it was first published. It drew scorn from St. Jerome in the 4th century and from St. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th. And yet, it also won the enthusiastic trust of St. Gregory of Nyssa in the 4th century and St. Maximus Confessor in the 6th. It's inspired beautiful works of art. And I can testify that when I was in the first grade, the religious sisters who taught me taught the words of the Proto-Evangelium as history, straight up, no chaser. So who's right? St. Thomas Aquinas or the religious sisters who taught me? You're crazy if you think I'm gonna answer that question. If the Proto-Evangelium had a Facebook page, its relationship status would probably say it's complicated. Today, we usually encounter it in these books. I have so many of them around here like this, okay? Uh, pulpy books, sensationalist collections that suggest a, a Da Vinci Code kind of edginess. They have titles like The Other Bible, The Lost Books of the Bible, and The Forgotten Books of Eden. The copy on the back cover is usually breathless, ripe with words like secret, hidden, suppressed, and everywhere there are dark hints of conspiracy. Well, the Proto-Evangelium is one of the books we typically call Apocrypha or Pseudepigrapha. The Greek word Apocrypha does actually mean hidden or suppressed. The word pseudepigrapha refers to writings that are attributed to some famous name, 
but whose real author is unknown. I should note that the Proto-Evangelium does not fall into the same category as the books labeled Apocrypha in the Old Testament of Protestant Bibles. For Roman Catholics and Orthodox Christians and others, those books are received as divinely inspired. They're part of the biblical canon. The Proto-Evangelium, on the contrary, comes with no such guarantee, no such pedigree, and no such seal of approval. So what exactly is this text? Where did it come from? And what does it claim to tell us? Well, the Latin title we give it today, the Proto-Evangelium, Jacobi, is actually a fairly recent imposition. In antiquity, the book was circulated um, with the title that's often the, the birth of Mary, the nativity of Mary. Its authorship is attributed in the text itself, not in the title, to, the bro to James, the brother of the Lord, a figure we know from, from other books, from the New Testament, actually. The author claims to be Jesus' half-brother, the son of Joseph by a previous marriage. He's writing soon after the birth of Jesus in order to preserve an eyewitness testimony to the marvelous events that had just transpired, he says. He testifies that he's in hiding, as he writes, having escaped the unrest in Jerusalem after the death of Herod the Great. This attribution to James appears only at the end of the text, in a brief final chapter that is not integral to the narrative. The author is nowhere else identified, so the attribution could have been added many years after the book first circulated in order to enhance its value and credibility. The original title does not position the text as a gospel. If it was indeed known simply as the Nativity of Mary, it was not claiming equality with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, at least not with its title, uh, nor with its length. The Proto-Evangelium is relatively short. Uh, the English translations run to about 5,600 words. That makes it slightly more than a third the size of the Gospel of Mark, which is the shortest of the canonical Gospels. It may have been modest in its aims, but it had a spectacular reach. It was widely revered in the ancient church from a very early date. We have today more than 150 Greek manuscripts that have survived, and that's only the Greek. We also have manuscripts in Syriac, Armenian, Coptic, Georgian, Ethiopian, and Old Slavonic. There are even a few in Latin, though the Proto-Evangelium never quite caught on in the West the way it did in the East. In addition to the full manuscripts, we also have significant excerpts uh, preserved in ancient and medieval lectionaries and calendars of the Eastern churches. Its stories found a still wider audience as they were included in sermons and recycled in later biographies of the Blessed Virgin, and often depicted in paintings by the great masters, especially in the Middle Ages. We can conclude from the condition of the copies that the Proto-Evangelium was never, never, never considered on a par with the canonical scriptures. How do we know this? Because the scribes who copied it felt free to embellish it and edit it. And they would never have presumed such freedom as they copied the canonical texts. Keep in mind the last verses of the New Testament, the last uh, verses of the book of Revelation. They're a warning to copyists and scribes and a curse upon those who would deviate from the words that were received from the apostles. Listen to this. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. That's serious business. You do not want to earn the wrath that goes with those plagues. And the ancient manuscripts suggest that the copyists took their work seriously. The New Testament books were transmitted with a far greater degree of integrity 
than the works of Homer, Virgil, or Julius Caesar. But that's not the case with the Proto-Evangelium, which appeared through the centuries in longer versions and shorter versions with many variations, great and small. The scribes felt free to improve upon what they had received, and everyone was okay with that. It was generally understood that the stories in the Proto-Evangelium were fictions, fictions, loosely based on historical facts. They were edifying entertainments, like the later medieval mystery plays and the sword and sandal Hollywood productions of our own time. But that doesn't mean they have no value. Like the novel and the movie Ben-Hur, they stand as witness to the piety of the time when they were produced and especially in regard to the piety for the Blessed Virgin Mary. And this makes the Proto-Evangelium immensely valuable in its way. Since the time of the Protestant Reformation, critical scholars have taken it as axiomatic, self-evident, unquestionable, that the primitive church had no Marian devotion whatsoever. The cult of the Virgin, according to this school of thought, burst suddenly on the scene in the 5th century, around the time of the Council of Ephesus. Now, since these, these Protestant scholars took this to be unquestionably true, well, any text that showed such devotion was typically assigned a late date of composition. So the Proto-Evangelium was usually placed in the 500s at the, at the earliest. But that opinion was upended in 1958 when scholars turned up a papyrus manuscript of the work that was datable to the early 200s. That's the manuscript that was datable to the 200s. So after studying the manuscript in that light, there's now a scholarly consensus that places the composition of the Proto-Evangelium around 150 AD, 150 AD and perhaps earlier. Once the early date was irrefutably established, it seemed as if it should have been self-evident all along. The Proto-Evangelium, after all, does, doesn't use the language of later Marian piety. It doesn't refer to her as Mother of God, for example, nor does it concern itself with the Christological debuts, disputes that, ar that arose in the centuries-long struggle against Arianism and then Nestorianism and Monophysitism. If we look at Marian documents from those times, it's almost as if they couldn't help but place anti-heretical arguments in the mouth of the Blessed Virgin. There's no such evidence of that kind of thing going on in the Proto-Evangelium, not a trace of it. Its concerns are simpler and more primitive. The concerns of the Proto-Evangelium are largely apologetic. The book is a long defense of the Blessed Virgin's honor and by extension, our Lord's honor as well. But its argument is directed not against wayward Christians, as it might have been in the 6th century, but rather against the slanders of pagans and Jews. Now, if the ancient text had been as boring as all the background information I've given you so far, I guarantee you we never would have heard of this document. The reason it survived, the reason it was a bestseller over the course of a millennium, the reason why not even St. Jerome could keep readers away from it, was that it was a fantastic read. It was an exciting story. It was a page-turner of a novel, a rich human drama well told. The plot of the Proto-Evangelium turns on really human things. It's a drama of infertility and childbirth, danger and flight, sacrilege and divine wrath, murder, murder, and more murder, <laughs> and miracles by the dozen. Its special effects rival anything you've seen in a Steven Spielberg movie. The Proto-Evangelium doesn't waste time on preliminaries. Its opening lines introduce us to a man named Joachim. We learn that he's a priest who serves in the Jerusalem temple. And he is not just well off. We're told that he's extremely rich, extremely rich, and also exceedingly generous. He's a humble man. 
contrite for his sins. Well, one day, as he goes about his service, another priest confronts Joachim and blocks his way. The priest, whose name is Rubel, informs Joachim that he has no business offering sacrifice because he's obviously cursed by God in his infertility. Well, Joachim is devastated by this charge, which he accepts in his humility. And he's so ashamed that he doesn't bother going home to his wife. He takes to the desert to fast until the Lord should appear to him and give him an answer. At the same time, his wife, Anne, suffers a similar humiliation in the taunts of one of her servants. Like her husband, she takes herself to prayer. She sits under a laurel tree and pours her heart out to God in a lament that's a chapter long. Joachim is a man of few words. Anne has a lot to say to Almighty God. Most of the verses in her chapter begin with the phrase, Woe is me. Now, anyone who suffered the grief of infertility will relate to Anne's prayer. She ponders the fecundity of the earth and the animals, the birds, the fish, and even the water. And she asks why God blesses them but leaves her barren. Well, the prayers of Joachim and Anne are answered immediately by angelic visitations. Two angels appear to Anne and only one to Joachim. This speaks well for using longer prayers, I guess. Both husband and wife receive the promise that they will soon have a child even though they are advanced in age. They are instructed to name the child Mary. Anne spontaneously promises to get dedicate her child to God's service forever. This then is the extraordinary beginning of an extraordinary life. The narrative suggests parallels from the history of Israel the text explicitly invokes the stories of Sarah conceiving Isaac, of Rachel conceiving Joseph, of Manoah's wife conceiving Samson, and of Hannah conceiving Samuel. Pregnancy follows, and then birth, and then Mary's infancy, which is strange and filled with marvels and portents of her life to come. After taking her first steps, she is never again allowed to set foot on the ground. She's carried around from that point on. At her first birthday party, she receives prophetic blessings from all the priests who are in attendance, all of her father's colleagues. At age three, again, like Samuel before her, she is weaned from the breast and taken to the temple and given to its service. From this young age, she lives among virgins consecrated to the service of the temple liturgy. Now. In times past, critical scholars scoffed at this as an anachronism. They said that these early Christian authors were simply projecting a peculiarity, a Christian institution, backward into Judaism. But more recent research indicates that the Proto-Evangelium is not so far-fetched, at least in this detail. The patristic scholar John McGuckin writes that, indeed, the Herodian temple functioned as a school for the families of priests, also as a fabric workshop for cultic vestments, and it was staffed by members of priestly families and myriad other things. And employed in this temple service were young Jewish virgins consecrated to the task. McGuckin cites evidence from the Old Testament books of Exodus, 1 Samuel, and 2 Maccabees. And there are other ancient uh, references to consecrated virginity in Judaism. The Apocalypse of Baruch, which was composed in Hebrew in the first century AD, tells of the temple's virgins, and this is a quote, who weave fine linen and silk with gold of Ophir. And that's exactly what the Proto-Evangelium tells us that the Blessed Virgin was doing in her childhood. So, it's at least possible that the Proto-Evangelium's account of Mary's childhood has some basis in fact. Other details in the narrative, however, ask us for a more willful suspension of disbelief. 
We're told, for example, that throughout her years of service, Mary was fed like a dove and received food from the hand of an angel. That's one of the things that the sisters taught me when I was in first grade. We're told, too, that anyone who saw her was inspired to tenderness. And with tenderness came a certain burden on the heart, a deep desire to care for her and protect her. As her 12th birthday approached, the priests who felt this tenderness knew that she would reach puberty and menarche soon, and so she would need to leave the temple. Yet they sensed she had a special destiny. And so they urged the high priest, who at this time, according to the text, was none other than Mary's kinsman, Zechariah, they urged him to ask the Lord what should be done with her. Zechariah, of course, you know from the gospel, according to Luke, he was the father of John the Baptist. Well, he goes in and he puts the question to the Lord God. And the Lord indicates to Zechariah that Mary should be entrusted to a particular widower who will be revealed by an unmistakable sign. So the widowers of Israel are called together. And sure enough, a, a dove flies out from the staff of an elderly man whose name is Joseph. When the high priest informs Joseph of his special election, well, the old man declines the honor. He cites his advanced age, and he worries aloud that his pairing with the 12-year-old would look silly to the general public. But the high priest warns him of the dire consequences of rebellion against God, and so Joseph takes Mary into his care. Mary, meanwhile, continues to spin cloth for the temple's curtains. At this point in the Proto-Evangelium, the narrative converges with the accounts that we find in the canonical Gospels of Matthew and Luke. Most of the details, in fact, are taken from the canonical sources, though the Proto-Evangelium adds a bit of scenery here and there. We learn, for example, that Mary was fetching water when the angel Gabriel appeared to her at the Annunciation. We don't see that in the canonical Gospels. We do see it in some of the earliest images of the Blessed Virgin that have survived. Uh, the image, for example, um, in the, uh, the house church at Dura Europos in, in Syria. The, the actual image right now is kept at Yale University. But there she's shown fetching water at the time of the Annunciation. We're also told that Mary was 16 at the time she conceived Jesus, and that during pregnancy, she continued her curtain work for the temple. The great anomaly in the Proto-Evangelium is that it never presents Joseph as Mary's husband. Never presents Joseph as Mary's husband. They are betrothed, but never married. And Joseph states this explicitly and repeatedly. Thus, her pregnancy presents a major problem. He discovers it to his shock when he returns home after months away at work. And as I said, he's horrified. He's shocked. He doesn't know whether Mary has been seduced or raped, but he knows well that he has failed in a charge received from God. He knows furthermore that the consequences will be catastrophic. He puts the matter in the gravest terms. He cries out. Has not the story of Adam been repeated with me? For while Adam was glorifying God, the serpent came and found Eve alone and deceived her and defiled her. So it has also happened to me. When he turns his anger on Mary, she defends herself. And then, as in the Gospel of Matthew, Joseph resolves to divorce her quietly. But of course, he is prevented by an angel. In the Proto-Evangelium, however, that decision doesn't bring closure. A nosy neighbor, a scribe named Annas, notices Mary's pregnancy and reports the matter to the authorities. When charged, Mary and Joseph both protest their innocence before the priests, but they are, they are forced to undergo a trial by ordeal 
Specifically, they're commanded to undergo the ordeal of jealousy prescribed in the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapter 5. The priests make them drink poison, the water of the Lord's wrath, and then they send them out into the desert to await divine judgment on their case. Well, the couple returns unharmed, and so they are vindicated. God himself exonerated Mary and Joseph. The Proto-Evangelium continues then with episodes that will be familiar to us. There's the decree of the census of Caesar Augustus. Then there's the journey to Bethlehem. But here we're told of a stop along the way. And this simple mention in the text would, in, in later on, in the 5th century, inspire the construction of a massive church at this site called the Kathisma of the Theotokos, the church of the seed of the mother of God. And it stood there as a pilgrim destination until it was destroyed in the 14th century. A strange thing happens with chapter 18 of the Proto-Evangelium. Some of the narrative shifts at that point from third person to first person. And the narrator is clearly not James, the author, but Joseph himself. As Mary feels that birth is imminent, Joseph takes her to a cave for shelter and rest. And he reports that suddenly all creation stood still. It's a very poetic passage. Joseph says, even the birds of the sky were not moving. And I looked at the ground and saw a bowl lying there and workers reclining. And their hands were in the bowl. And they were not chewing and picking food up. They were not picking it up. Rather, all their faces were looking up. And I saw sheep being driven, but the sheep were standing still. And I saw the rushing current of the river, and I saw goats, goats, and their mouths resting in the water, but they were not drinking. Something very mysterious is happening, and Joseph senses it. He then hurries off in search of a Hebrew midwife, an echo of the book of Genesis. Uh, he meets two, in fact. One is unnamed and the other called Salome. In Joseph's dialogue with the midwives, he makes clear that Mary is not his wife and that her conception has been virginal. The first midwife witnesses the miraculous birth. The cave is first enveloped by cloud and then by light. And then suddenly, the child is nursing at the breast. When the first midwife tells Salome about the virginal birth, Salome refuses to believe her. Shades of doubting Thomas here. And she insists that she won't believe unless she performs an intimate examination of the Blessed Virgin. Now, this is the scene that critics throughout the ages have decried for its poor taste. Salome goes ahead and conducts the examination and pronounces that Mary is indeed a virgin. But because of her unbelief, her hand withers, we're told, as if it's consumed by fire. Only when she picks up the baby Jesus is her hand restored. Then she lifts him and says, I worship him because he has been born a king to Israel. And then we're told she left the cave justified. Well, after this unseemly scene, the narrative again converges with the canonical account. We're told of King Herod's encounter with the Magi. We're also told of how John the Baptist managed to escape the massacre of the innocents. That's something the canonical Gospels don't tell us. As John and his mother Elizabeth were fleeing, a mountain opened up to receive them. And there, in the hollow, an angel protected them. John's father, Zechariah, however, was brutally interrogated while he was at work in the temple, but he refused to reveal his family's whereabouts. And so he was murdered in the very sanctuary. According to the Proto-Evangelium, Zechariah's blood turned to stone and could not be removed from the floor. A voice from heaven told the priests, Zechariah has been murdered and his blood will not be wiped away until vengeance comes. These stories, of course, do not appear in the accounts of Matthew and Luke. 
Later commentators, however, connected this violence episode with Jesus' brief mention in Matthew's Gospel of the blood of Zechariah, who was murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. It's in chapter 23 of Matthew's Gospel. And a similar account of murder in the temple appears in the Talmud of the Jews. So it's possible that all of these sources refer to the same shocking event. After the story of Zechariah, the book ends rather abruptly with a tiny chapter identifying the book's author as James. So, what are we to make of all this? What are we to do with it? Well, it's helpful for us to remind ourselves of the document's origin, its tradition of reception, and its purpose. It is indeed very old, and it is indeed quite possible that the Proto-Evangelium preserves for us some traditions that would otherwise be lost. In its pages, we find the earliest mention of the names of Mary's parents, Joachim and Anne, who have been venerated in the church since the time of the fathers. I've mentioned other traditions of Mary's life that are at least defensible and were also widely accepted by the fathers. The great Marian Pope, St. John Paul II, mentioned the Proto-Evangelium approvingly for its influence on Catholic devotion. And his approval was echoed by the Congregation for Divine Worship in its 2001 Directory on Popular Piety and the Liturgy. Yet I've also mentioned that some of the saints detested the book almost as much as my monk friend does. St. Jerome went way beyond a facepalm. He flew into one of his characteristic rages as he compared the Proto-Evangelium's version of the Nativity to the accounts we find in the canonical Gospels. Listen to Jerome. He's, he's, he's always, um, he's always uh, entertaining when he gets ticked off. God forbid that we should think thus of the Savior's mother and of a just man. No midwife assisted at his birth. No women's officiousness intervened. With her own hands, she wrapped him in swaddling clothes, herself both mother and midwife, and laid him, we are told, in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn, a statement which itself refutes the ravings of the apocryphal accounts. The ravings of the apocryphal accounts. 800 years later, St. Thomas Aquinas quoted Jerome's words, the ravings of the apocryphal accounts, as authoritative in his Summa Theologica. For us, I think, the key is to understand the Proto-Evangelium and appreciate it in the context of its time. The Proto-Evangelium was written primarily to fulfill a common desire in Christians of the early generations. They wanted to know more about the Blessed Virgin Mary than they could glean from a few passages in the Gospels. And they knew that such information, well, it just must be available out there somewhere. If only someone could be industrious enough to go out and get it. The success of the Proto-Evangelium proves, says the scholar John McGuckin, that there was a substantial cultus of the Blessed Virgin from earliest times. This is not a late development. This is, this is not an innovation of, of, um, of the centuries after Nicaea. No, the cult of the Blessed Virgin was there in the church from the birth of the church. McGuckin goes on to explain, Mary was apparently a figure powerful enough in the affairs of the early church to have more than rivaled Peter or Paul, both of whom have cults in the sense of disciples who subsequently elevate their lives and legends as examples of true piety and right theology. Both Peter and Paul are subjects of similar apocryphal ravings, but those books, the books about Peter and Paul, were nowhere near as popular or as influential or as frequently copied and imitated and quoted as the Proto-Evangelium. This book was a bestseller from the get-go. It served a practical purpose, too. 
it supplied an apologetic response to Jews and pagans who had identified the claim of virginal motherhood as a point of weakness in the gospel. There are, in fact, two doctrines most often mocked in the anti-Christian polemics of the first three centuries. One is the resurrection of Jesus. The other is the virginity of Mary. We find evidence of such mockery even in the Gospels, even in the canonical Gospels. At the end of St. Matthew's Gospel, we see the chief priests bribing the guards to say that Jesus' body had been stolen. St. Matthew observes that the story had staying power, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day, he says. Jesus' parentage is obliquely called into question in St. Mark's Gospel. When Jesus' neighbors want to dismiss his fitness for the role of a teacher, they say, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary? It's a subtle insult, easily lost on us today, but it would have been clear to a first century hearer. A man was normally called the son of his father, even if his father had died. Calling Jesus the son of Mary, they were tacitly acknowledging the hometown gossip the Holy Family had probably had to face for decades. Well, most of that gossip found a permanent home in the Babylonian and Jerusalem Talmuds. In those pages, compiled in the third century, the honor of Jesus and Mary is regularly impugned. The Blessed Virgin is spared no indignity. She is portrayed as an adulterer, a harlot, a shrew, promiscuous, immodest, and a concert of the chosen people's most detestable enemies. Jesus is said to be the offspring of such an illicit union. And these tales traveled far beyond the boundaries of the Jewish community. They reappear cited from Jewish sources in the anti-Christian tract, The True Doctrine, produced by the pagan Chelsus in the second century. In the world of the second century, as in our world today, the mention of virginity draws a smirk and a raised eyebrow. The author of the Proto-Evangelium wanted nothing so much as to produce an irrefutable response to that smirk and those insults. And so virginity emerged as the central theme in the book. And in service to that theme, the figure of Joseph was reduced to little more than a useful prop. Father Joseph Leinhard of Fordham University identifies four important but problematic assertions about St. Joseph that the Proto-Evangelium makes as it tries to patch up vulnerable spots in the Gospels. Number one, the Proto-Evangelium asserts that Joseph was far older than Mary, which makes him less tempted to violate her virginity. Number two, the Proto-Evangelium asserts that Joseph was a widower with children, which explains the gospel passages about the brothers and sisters of Jesus. Number three, the Proto-Evangelium asserts that Joseph is reluctant to take Mary, which suggests reverence and awe for her rather than desire. Number four, the Proto-Evangelium asserts that Joseph is portrayed as the divinely elected companion or protector of Mary, not her husband, not her husband. And this allows the author to avoid writing of any marriage between Joseph and Mary. The Proto-Evangelium is not the first document to show evidence of the apologetic concern for Mary's virginity. That is, is a theme that's an important in the Jewish Christian document, The Ascension of Isaiah, which was produced around 70 AD. But the Proto-Evangelium goes at it with a vengeance in ways that the earlier text does not. Here's how the Mariologist Theodore Kohler said uh, the, the Proto-Evangelium deals with it. He says, in the Proto-Evangelium, the search for edif edification is mixed with poetry. The taste for the miraculous is united to a certain lack of taste. And that sums it up. There's a certain immoderation here. There's a certain lack of good taste, of good sense. And I'm afraid that's, that's true. The, the author of the Proto-Evangelium was willing to sacrifice, for example, 
St. Joseph's character, portraying him as decrepit and impotent, stumbling and bumbling in order to score apologetic points. That's what infuriated St. Jerome. In the interest of proving Mary's virginity, all good taste and good sense went out the window. And what was one? Probably nothing. It seems unlikely that pagans and Jews would be moved by the portrayal of Joseph as a sad sack, or by the report of a gynecological exam performed by a midwife, or by the repeated denial that Mary and Joseph had a true marriage. None of this is edifying. None of this is helpful. Jerome's outrage is understandable. Well, tomorrow, the church observes the birthday of the Blessed Virgin. And today we can be grateful that we possess such a monument to her devotion from the earliest Christian centuries. The Proto-Evangelium is a text that shows the constancy of our devotion to Mary as the new Eve and the Ark of the Covenant as ever virgin and as blessed from the moment of her conception. And we can sense that burning devotion in its pages, even if we think that it goes overboard. We can furthermore be appreciative, as St. John Paul was, of the document's salutary influence through the ages. But we should be careful not to canonize the book, or seem to canonize it, or use it to prove anything other than the devotion of Christian people to the Blessed Virgin at a very early point in time. The great Mariologists of the last two centuries, Matthias Schaben and Luigi Gambaro, have warned against misuse of the ancient non-canonical texts. Such writings, said Father Gambaro, cannot be considered a witness to the official teaching of the church. But they can at least serve to give a certain idea of the religious interests and Marian piety of their time and of the questions that the faithful asked about the Lord's mother. And Shaban gives us this. He says, the expression tradition tells us should be avoided in these circumstances, lest someone confuse mere historical traditions and the dogmatic. We should avoid giving the impression that tradition, embracing facts outside the frame of the gospel narratives, has no better support than these legendary sources. Likewise, we should refrain from presenting as historically probable matter which beforehand appears to be fabulous by introducing this or that testimony, disregarding whether it is true or fictitious. Our faith does not rest on the testimony of the Proto-Evangelium or similar apocrypha, but we certainly recognize the faith we hold in common with the Christians who wrote those texts and the readers who first read them and heard them read aloud. The Mariologist, contemporary Mariologist, Brian Reynolds, says that the Proto-Evangelium is probably the earliest writing to suggest, at least implicitly, that Mary's conception was in some way sacred. Her conception was in some way sacred. He adds that the Proto-Evangelium tells us of the miraculous circumstances of Mary's conception, thus suggesting that the Virgin was the subject of divine intervention from the very first instant of her existence. The event is presented as extraordinary, and in this we cannot help but see a glimmer of the beliefs that would ultimately find form in the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. So we can appreciate the Proto-Evangelium, but we should also heed the advice of the great scholar Origen in the third century. He said, we must use caution in taking up all these secret writings that circulate today under the name of the saints. So with a bit of caution, we've taken up these pages. But we shouldn't just give caution. We should also give glory. And let's do that right now for their proving of the deep devotion of our ancestors. For that, we give thanks and we give glory to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please join me. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Thank you.
Thank you, Mike. Thank you so much for uh, the time and, and dedication you uh, spend in preparing for us this evening. A wonderful introduction to this text. All right, Andy, I'm going to turn it over to you for the first question. Great. First question is coming from Bob Clancy. Yes. Mm -hmm. Did the church ever declare the Proto-Evangelium of St. James as a banned book? A fairly scholarly Baptist friend mentioned this to me about six years ago, and he references the Galatian Decree AD 416. Right, right, right. Um, was, was it a banned book? Well, the, the short an answer is we don't quite know. We don't know if the Galatian degree, decree that we have is authentic. It's a very helpful decree because it's, it's the most thorough catalog of the um, apocryphal and pseudepigraphal literature that we have uh, from antiquity. Uh, it is very old. It may be, indeed, uh, from Pope Galatius, but we don't know is the short answer. What's problematic about that is that the, um, it, is that the Nativity of Mary, the Proto-Evangelium, was used in many of the, the Eastern churches in their calendars, uh, their liturgical calendars, and also in their, um, what's the word I'm looking for, their lectionaries, uh, it's to be read aloud at the times of the feasts. So obviously they, they had a certain, a certain reverence for the book, uh, even though they didn't give it canonical status. Uh, they, they considered it to be useful, at least for public piety. So I guess we don't know whether it was banned, if, if it was banned in the West, that ban was not observed in the churches of the East uh, because the, um, there's a proliferation of, um, of manuscripts in Greek and Armenian and Georgian of the, uh, the Proto-Evangelium. Next question. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Lewis is uh, asking the question of whether this is the earliest, well, I'm adding earliest, but is this the main source we have for the identity of Mary's parents, Joachim and Anne? I don't know if it's the, if it's the, earliest source of all. It is the earliest that has survived. If the book is right about those names, uh, then, then it uh, obviously received them from an earlier tradition, which hasn't survived in any written form. But this is the earliest testimony we have to the names Joachim and Anne. Thank you, Mike. The next question comes from Ernest Trevino. He asks, what does the Catholic Church say pertaining to Joseph being widowed? Is this factual? And if this is so, did he have children from his previous marriages? We don't know. And the fathers are divided on that question. Some of the fathers thought jo Joseph was a widower and that he had children from a previous marriage. Perhaps they're following the Proto-Evangelium here. Jerome disagreed with that. And Jerome was one of the great scripture scholars of antiquity. And he lived in the Holy Land and he did his historical research. But he... Um, vigorously opposed this. I, I think that the concern to, to portray Joseph as an old man was a way of protecting Mary's virginity. They wanted there to be no question of any danger here. So in some of the other Apocrypha, Joseph's age is listed as 92 years old, 92 years old when he married the 12-year-old Virgin Mary. So you know, this is obviously uh, an apologetic strategy. You know, they want to just shore up the, uh, the arguments for the Blessed Virgin's integrity, her, her virginity. So there, there, there was not unanimity. There's a very good discussion of this. It's by Father Joseph Leinhardt. I referred to it in my talk, and it's called St. Joseph in Early Christianity. And he goes through uh, the different sources from the early church, and he talks about where the early fathers line up on this question of, of how old Joseph was, whether he was a widower uh, or not. We don't have any evidence. The church has no specific teaching on it. And obviously, this is, a, this is something um, about which even the canonized saints can disagree. There was a, a question here that's posted about the relationship between the, the value of this text in, for a Catholic versus something like the writings of St. Catherine Emmerich. Oh, okay. Um, you know, I, I've never done a side-by-side -side comparison, so I don't know how they, how they line up. If St. Catherine received an extraordinary revelation, it's quite possible that she received information that a, um, uh, a creative writer in the second century would lack. So I, I don't know. I haven't done a side-by-side -side comparison. Uh, it would be interesting to see whether the details line up at all. Yeah. I think the question was a little bit more about its value Oh. Uh, in the life of the church. And I think maybe, you know, it, obviously you, you did a beautiful job laying out for us. It's kind of like uh, 
uncertain standing in the early church and, uh, you know, used some ideas in it, used even liturgically in the Christian East. And, uh, and so there's a, a little bit of a balance there. I think that, that, uh, that any time you have a private revelation, you also have to proceed with caution because yeah. uh, the, the revelations can be set down uh, with mistakes. It's possible that the seer didn't understand what she saw. And, uh, and so, so there's, there, there can be errors in transmission. Private revelations don't have the same guarantee as the canonical scriptures. So we should use the same caution, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, Mike. This was a wonderful uh, evening, very informative. Uh, I hope everybody enjoyed it. And I, I want to wish all of you a blessed feast day as the, the sun is setting on the East yes. Coast, even now here on the, on the West Coast, that uh, uh, we've having, the sun has set and so the day has begun of the great feast of the birthday of the Mother of God. And I can't imagine a more beautiful feast to celebrate um, because, as you know, the, Mary always points to her son. And yes. so uh, we have through this feast day the uh, raising of our eyes toward the incarnation, which is which is now coming in a few months for us. So um, so that's it's beautiful for us to celebrate. I encourage you find a special way, call a friend to share your joy of the feast day, to go to church, to pray, to have a special dinner, invite some friends over to your house, open a special bottle of wine, and really enter into the feast because. Those that keep the feasts and keep the fasts of the church are those who remain strong in the faith. And, uh, and as an old priest told me once, where devotion to the mother of God remains strong, the faith remains strong. God bless you, uh, Mike Aquilina. A, really a special time for us here at the Institute to welcome you here. And we hope that you'll come back and, and, and be with us again in the future. Anytime. Thank you for having me. And I, I've, I've really appreciated spending the vigil of the feast with all of you. Wonderful. Okay. God bless you all. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.